All right, hello. Let's open our Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12 as we continue our studies. How many of you have watched Extreme Makeover? Popular TV show, it follows people through an intense process of changing the way they look. The procedures include the usual changes in wardrobe, makeup, and hairstyle. More extreme procedures include liposuction, facelift, rhinoplasty, cosmetic dentistry, chin implants, fat injections, and ear pinning. Press release for the show says this. Each episode will feature two people seen first in their before phase, then as they undergo their various procedures, and finally in a climactic unveiling, the after when the candidates reveal their new selves to their families and friends. Now, we may not be interested in TV's extreme makeover, but if you're a Christian, you are already being made over and you will experience a climactic unveiling. Our chapter describes the return of Jesus to the earth in what is called the second coming. Second coming occurs after Christians have been taken to heaven in the rapture and after the seven-year tribulation on the earth. All the Christians of the church age who are here called saints will return with Jesus in his second coming to the earth. Now in verse 10, we're going to read that when Jesus returns to earth, he will, quote, be glorified in his saints and be admired among all those who believe. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, he will be made more glorious in his consecrated people, and he will be marveled at and admired in his glory reflected in all who have believed. And so Jesus obviously will be revealed in all his glory, but part of that revelation is going to be his glory being reflected by you and I as we return with him in our glorified bodies. The Bible says that when he appears, we shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2. You'll have a glorified physical body, body that can handle life in heaven for all eternity, and your spirit will have been perfected to be without sin. The angels in heaven and the people on the earth who survived the tribulation will see the radical physical and spiritual transformation that has occurred in Christians. It will be a climactic unveiling, the ultimate extreme makeover, after which we will forever be on display as illustrations of what the power and grace of God have accomplished in those who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so let's take a look at all this in, uh, beginning in verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, obviously, we're starting in the middle of a chapter. The first five verses of the letter established that the church was not in the period of time we commonly call the Great Tribulation. In the world, they would have tribulation. In fact, they were already having it, but they would not be in the world during the Great Tribulation. It will be a righteous thing for God to punish the wicked in the Great Tribulation, for they are not always punished here as they deserve. And so God is able to mete out a righteous punishment. Now, it's interesting to me, Paul wrote as if the living non-believers troubling them right then would be judged shortly 
in the great tribulation and then at the second coming of Jesus. He wasn't looking to the final judgment at the resurrection of the dead that will take place after the thousand-year kingdom at the great, great white throne. I almost couldn't say that. In other words, he felt all this could occur very soon. Certainly in his lifetime, he believed the resurrection and rapture of the church was imminent and that the second coming was very close and that people living at that time could be the recipients of God's righteous judgment in the great tribulation. Now, just because Jesus hasn't returned doesn't make Paul wrong about the timing of all this. Every generation ought to live as though they are the last one before the Lord is revealed from heaven. The fact that the Lord hasn't come back doesn't do anything to, uh, you know, dampen our understanding that He is coming back and that He can come back at any moment. But I'd just like to point out that Paul, Paul said, hey, some of these people that are troubling you right now could be subject to the righteous judgment of God in the great tribulation. Uh, and so he had that sense of imminency of the rapture of the church and urgency uh, for the gospel. Paul was talking about non-believers being punished with tribulation during the great tribulation, but we can expand our thinking beyond that to ask if God will punish the wicked forever. There's a historical debate among Christians about future punishment in general and regarding hell in particular. A classic argument is that non-believers are simply annihilated as if they never existed in the first place. It's also become fashionable for certain Christians to try to deny the existence of a literal hell altogether. It'd be nice to be able to say there was no future punishment, no hell, but it wouldn't be biblical. Verses like this one seem to destroy arguments for annihilationism and the like. You can't say that annihilation is a kind of repayment for sinning against God's saints. It makes no sense to say that. It, it's not a repayment at all. It's just a disappearance. It's a canceling out. And, and so as much as even sincere Christians, uh, few, they're, though they're few, there are some who would argue that at the end of all things, those who didn't believe in Jesus Christ are simply annihilated as if they never existed. And though I would love to believe that, it's really not the clear teaching of Scripture. It's pretty clear that there is a time of judgment coming upon the earth and a future judgment of all those who have ever lived after that. Verse 7 says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven. Revealed is the word from which we get the word apocalypse. It's the unveiling of his majesty and glory and power at his second coming. In his first coming, Jesus' majesty and glory and power were veiled, as it were, by human flesh. In his second coming, he will be unveiled for all the world to see. He'll be revealed from heaven just as he ascended physically and bodily into heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus will return physically and bodily from heaven. He'll be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We read in other passages that his mighty angels gather together the survivors of the tribulation and help to separate believers from non-believers. They also, uh, Michael in particular, grabs the devil and uh, 
puts him in chains and casts him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So there's a lot of angelic activity going on uh, around the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, "...and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." The believers who survive the tribulation will find the flaming fire of Jesus to be light and warmth and purifying. The non-believers will be punished by it. They will be the subjects of retribution. Now, retribution is the meaning of the word translated vengeance uh, in verse 8. Our ideas about vengeance come mostly from television and movie heroes who deal out brutal vengeance from anger. It's more like retaliation or revenge. And, and I, I sad to say that it's quite entertaining. It, it shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, you know, the, you know, they always establish in the very first scene how evil the evil guy really is. And, and so that you, you, you know, I mean, hey, this guy's, this guy's going to die hard at the end. And he's never dead the first time. You ever notice that? They never die the first time. You think after 20 minutes of fighting, hanging out of airplanes, whatever they're doing, nuclear bombs going off in the guy's back pocket and all that, he's still not quite dead. He has one last hurrah and the hero has to put that down. And so that's our idea of retribution and vengeance. God's retribution, it's not like that at all. His retribution is the calm, controlled, just punishment meted out by the perfectly righteous judge upon those who have willfully violated his perfect law and refused his offers of salvation. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to be terrible and terrifying I and mean, real, uh, but it is not out of uh, a spirit of revenge. Nonbelievers are identified in verse 8 as those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second coming of Jesus will be preceded by unprecedented preaching of the gospel all over the earth to every person on the earth. If I'm recalling the revelation of Jesus Christ correctly, there are the two invincible witnesses during the first half of the tribulation. Midway through, the Antichrist is given power over them to kill them, but then they rise from the dead while the whole world watches. At the same time, there are 144,000 Jewish evangelists who cannot be killed, and occasionally angels warn men from the atmosphere about things like not taking the mark of the beast and uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the world at that time will be evangelized. There is a, there's always a teaching in the church that Jesus can't come back until the whole world has heard the gospel, but that pertains to the time of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, it doesn't mean we should back off on missions or not have as a goal to reach the whole world with the gospel. Obviously, we should, uh, but it's not a precondition for the return of Christ. The whole world will hear the gospel uh, during the Great Tribulation. And uh, no one will be without ex uh, excuse when the Lord returns. Nonbelievers do not know God, it says here, because they refuse to obey the gospel. It will be a willful decision for which they will be held accountable for all eternity. What will be their punishment? Well, verse 9 says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Punish can be translated, pay the penalty. 
And so they will pay the penalty with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. In his first coming, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for mankind's sin. As he dismissed his spirit to heaven, you know, the Lord cried out, Tetelestai, which often is translated, it is finished, but it also means uh, paid in full. It's actually a, a, an accounting term. It means to pay a debt in full. Sin carries a penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's what God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He says, the day that you eat of that fruit, you have sinned against me and you will die. They began to die. They immediately died spiritually. They began to die physically. Uh, and they did die uh, ultimately. And they would have died forever, eternally, had it not been for Jesus Christ paying the penalty on the cross. And so this penalty needs to be paid. Either you pay it for yourself by dying and being subject to judgment afterwards, or you let Jesus pay it for you and you receive his righteousness. If you refuse and reject Jesus, then you pay the penalty of everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Destruction, again, sadly, does not mean annihilation. It means ruination. It does not mean the cessation of existence, but the ruination of everything that makes existence worthwhile. One author wrote that unbelievers will pass into a night on which no morning dawns. And obviously it will be far worse than darkness. In other places it is described as torment, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where there is no rest night or day and where the fire is not quenched. The devil and his fallen angels will be there, but they will not be ruling a kingdom or meeting out any suffering. They will be suffering intensely as well. And in the eternal darkness of hell, I doubt any of its inhabitants will see anything ever again. I, I don't know if it, you know, it began with Dante's Inferno or where the history of it really began, but, but Western culture and, has the idea that... that um, the devil rules a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of hell. Uh, and this is filled in mythology and modern mythology and modern movies and, and just general, generally thinking people feel like, you know, you either go to heaven or to hell, and if you go to hell, the devil's waiting there to torment you. As if, you know, as if it's a punishment for him to be given a kingdom. I think it, from the inferno, I think one of the lines, the only line I know from the inferno is, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's, what kind of a crazy theology is that? And so the, the truth is, hell was created for the devil and his angels as a place of eternal punishment, not as a kingdom to rule where he can gloat over the souls that he stole from God. Uh, it just happens to be the only other destination other than heaven for people who reject God. And so there will be eternal suffering there. No one will be ruling hell as a kingdom. The presence of the Lord and the glory of his power were the things you were created to enjoy in an eternal fellowship with God, which gets us right back to where we started in verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. When Jesus returns with his saints... The believers and non-believers who have survived the tribulation on the earth will see just what God had in mind all along in creating the human race. You will be glorified, perfected, ready to share endless ages of joy with God, all because you believed 
because you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior when you heard the gospel. And that's why I titled this message Apocalypse Wow Factor because at the apocalypse, you and I will be like a wow factor when people think, wow, that's what God had in mind for the human race, something glorious. Now, the last two verses then are the application of all this. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. As the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of your future glory, it seems here you have three responsibilities in your present suffering. These are captured by three words, worthy, walk, and witness. Worthy in these verses applies to the present. It's an encouragement to live up to your calling by enduring suffering. Your walk is described in verse 11. The NIV translates the words this way, that by his power God may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act promoted by your faith. The idea is to let God empower you to endure suffering. And then third, your witness is to have the name of our Lord Jesus Christ glorified in you and you in him. You're to reveal Jesus by enduring suffering until suffering ends. All of this is only possible according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were saved by grace. Your life is sustained by grace. When you are satisfied in your suffering that God's grace is sufficient for you, it becomes a witness that reveals Jesus until he's revealed at his coming. And so these last few verses, the bottom line, we are to reveal Jesus in our suffering now that's how the chapter began, talking about the suffering we have now. And we are to reveal him, we will reveal him through our glorification later. And so now, later, it really doesn't matter. You and I have a purpose, and that is to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ uh, and to let others see that he is indeed alive. Uh, and... Um, it's obviously more difficult now to endure suffering than it will be then to return with him in his second coming. Uh, but thinking about that reality gives us courage for the day that we have uh, ahead of us. Uh, none of us know the number of our days. Let's just get out there and do what God has called us to do. Amen. Amen.